Bad news. Bad news for the state. Bad news for capital. Bad news for patriarchy. Bad news for all forms of domination. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide. If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Hello and welcome to the 52nd edition of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World, uh, radio show collage of anti-authoritarian and anarchist radio network. First contribution for today's show is uh, by Czerna Luknia that has prepared the interview with a member of uh, publishing network Crime Think about the fire that recently destroyed their central distribution center. Next we will hear an interview prepared by A Radio Berlin that talked with the collective from the queer feminist squad Sirena in Warsaw in Poland that was brutally attacked and evicted by a crowd connected to the neighbor squad in on 5th of December uh, last year. And the last contribution is coming by the radio The Final Straw. They uh, make an interview with a member of Takushina Anarchist or Anarchist Struggle, a collective of combat medics participating in the Rojava revolution. In this edition of Bad News we will also hear a song made by a comrade currently stationed in Vienna, Mata Granata, and the song is called Nebiram Hrvatsko. Also contributing from Elephant in the Room about the recent protests in Kazakhstan. Also from the Free Social Radio 14.31 a.m. Updates from Greece. No bastard ever came home from earning $8.25 an hour feeling proud. Minimum wage? Just a fancy term for industrialized slavery. We're in a war. A war with the privileged. Those aren't streets you're sitting on. They're battlefields. And it is our duty to fight the comfortable and the overfed. So go forth, you sons of bitches. Izbojišće razredne vojne poruča Črna Luknja. In the middle of December of 2021, the anarchist publishing network Crime Think was hit by a devastating fire that destroyed its central distribution center. Books, posters and equipment were lost. But almost immediately the rebuilding efforts started as well. For this edition of Bad News, Czerna Luknia has spoken with a comrade from the eastern coast of the so-called USFA that participates in Crime Think Network. We spoke about what exactly happened, about the inevitable speculations about the potential foul play and about what can be done in support of the efforts to rebuild the publishing and distribution arm of Crime Think. The discussion was recorded at the end of December 2021. What are the known facts about the fire? What happened and what is the damage? The fire started on December 15th in a condominium that was under construction in downtown Olympia, Washington. And it spread throughout the, the condominium and then spread to the buildings next to it. It destroyed three buildings entirely. These buildings contained a lot of different things, different projects, different businesses. There was a print shop in one of them. Um, people were living in one of them, although fortunately they were not inside. Uh, and one of the buildings contained the space that our mail order operation 
has been working out of. Now, fortunately, nobody was hurt in the, the fire, but the fire destroyed um, thousands of books and posters and stickers that we have, correspondence we had received, the, the computer um, that we used to keep up with the mail orders. Um, it destroyed the furniture that we had built for the space. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, it was a, a scary experience for sure. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have insurance of any kind, uh, nor did the building owner have insurance. Um, if anybody out there is listening and they have a, they're involved in a radical collective project like ours, yes, you should probably get insurance for it if you can afford it. But of course, it's easier to afford insurance if you're doing a for-profit for project, a project that, um, that brings in a lot of profits. And our goal has always been to do what we do as volunteers um, and to do it, you know, just selling things at the cost it takes to produce them. So we, we never had a lot of money to put towards buying insurance or anything like that. Um, so the, the fire caught us um, unprepared and yeah, it destroyed tens of thousands of dollars worth of supplies. Since CrimeThink is a globally known anarchist structure that has been targeted in the past by both the authorities and other forces, the question was always going to be, was the fire an accident? This is the question that everyone has been asking and speculating on, how did the fire start? And the truth is nobody knows the cause of it yet. The fire does not appear to have been an arson attack targeting us, at least not an arson attack targeting us. Uh, although, yes, a lot of fascists online have celebrated about the fire as if it were an attack. And of course, online fascists will lie about anything and they'll say anything. We didn't publicize the location of our space. Um, this was not publicly known. It was not publicly known that we were doing the mail order from there, so we don't have reason to believe that this was a targeted attack on us or anyone else. It seems like it was just bad fortune in a time when there have been more and more fires, in fact, in the Northwest, not just fires burning down buildings, but fires destroying entire forests and ecosystems, as well as human communities. I think that we just suffered the consequences of living in a particularly dangerous time. What are the most immediate needs of the network and what can be done to support CrimeThink in this moment of crisis? Well, the really good news is that, first of all, none of us were hurt. No one was hurt in the fire. And all of us are still determined to be doing this work. And uh, our relationships are intact. Our determination is intact. The most important elements in a project like this are the determination of the participants and the goodwill of the people that we work with and the people whose struggles we hope to support. And the good news is that we have both of those in abundance. So nothing essential has been compromised by this disaster. And in addition to this, people have already donated a tremendous amount of money to us. Uh, we, we now have enough money to reprint all of the books and posters and stickers and other materials that we lost in the fire and to find a new space. And that happened really in the course of a week. So it was a humbling uh, amount of, of support that people have directed towards us. And it just gives us 
an additional responsibility to, to work hard, to, to dedicate ourselves to, to what we've already been doing, but to do it in a way that shows how grateful we are for the support that we've gotten and shows that it, it's not a mistake for people to put their faith in us to, you know, to do this. Um, if people still want to help us, of course, we won't refuse assistance. Um, if you go to our website, uh, crimethink.com, in the upper right corner of the website, there is a button that says something like support us. And if you click on that, it will, it will show you ways that you can support us. Um, you know, for people listening to this outside the United States, of course, there are a lot of other things that you could do to help us. We eagerly want to publish versions of our texts in other languages. So if you can contact us, just write contact at crimethink.com, email us there. Uh, and if you want to help us with translation, that would also be fantastic. So I want to emphasize the most important thing that people can do to help us is to continue taking action, continue organizing where you are located. And, you know, so that we can be part of a collective international struggle. That is the most important thing. For 10 years now, there had been a squad in Warsaw called Sirena, where a lot of political activity was happening, a lot of initiatives met there, and it was a home to a lot of comrades. On 5th of December 2021, Sirena Collective was attacked within the context of patriarchal violence by, amongst others, inhabitants of their neighbor squad. In the end, they had to evacuate. We did an interview with two comrades of Sirena Collective. At this point, I would like to give a short trigger warning. You will hear a lot about why feminism and queer liberation is so fucking necessary. In the interview, there's topics addressed such as strong physical violence and messed up power play bullshit. Okay. Okay, so good morning, Tadek and Zuska. I'm so happy that you're here talking to me right now. Hi. I've been hearing that many of the events that we will be talking about have some kind of thing to do with also the general situation with homophobia, transphobia in Poland and everywhere. And we've been hearing some very exciting news about queer people trying to be in resistance about that. Is it okay for you to tell us a little more about the prehistory of queer militancy that happened in Warsaw? Awesome. I think it started when government in Poland make like public policy against LGBTQA plus people and when the president during the election when he said that LGBT people are not a people are their ideology. Also I think that what is different in homophobia and antisemitism in Poland it's that you're allowed to say it that there is no more this situation that it's not okay to talk it about it publicly among friends among people it's, it's just once again the history when there is a chosen other 
So queer people in Poland live terrorized by this majority society and dominant culture and politicians and media who are hateful towards them. And they do organize themselves against this and resist. And very recently, in the last few years, this movement is taking a radical turn. There are queer anarchist groups appearing and uh, direct actions against homophobic propaganda. And one of the important tools of homophobic propaganda is these hateful tracks that drive around the towns and with very loud speakers, they spread hateful messages about LGBTQ plus people, that they are pedophiles, rapists, or another made up lies. And these trucks have hateful banners on their sides and these really, really loud speakers, and they just drive slowly around towns spreading hate. They are often escorted by the police. So queer people, one of the forms of direct actions is attacking this or blocking these trucks, sometimes just peacefully blocking them so that they don't drive any further, and sometimes directly attacking them, the spray painting, cutting the banners, cutting the tires, breaking the windows, or stuff like that. And one of such attacks took place in front of our house on Vilcha 30, Sehena squad that used to be there two years ago. And uh, and actually for this attack, we had birthday of our project and this truck stopped in front of our house and with this ongoing slogans from the, from the loudspeakers. So people attacked it, smashed it a little and maybe roughed up one of the drivers. After that, there was severe state repression and one of the members of the Stop Stuham Stop bullshit collective who was living in our house they went actually to jail for a while for that attack but i think what is important for this story is to mention that also there was severe backlash from the cis male part of the so-called anarchist movement particularly from Przychodnia squad but also from some other people in in the scene i would say in the punk scene who were offended by that queer people in a bright day just openly use political violence against homophobic track and that this is some sort of provocation, that this is bad for the image of the movement, that the police will now be angry or shit like that. And why would we bring politics into the neighborhood? Also, what it's important in the context of current events and that they accuse collective of Serena that by responding to this super loud, violent messages from the loudspeakers that we are putting the highlight on the place where is a squad that maybe you could do something, but somewhere else, but not when the car is stopping in front of your house. And actually, when they attack us, they put huge spotlight on both of the squads. And also, it's like you cannot tell to the person that you cannot protect yourself. This message is putting you down and you are just getting out to protect yourself and to protect your friends. So I think if you call yourself anti-fascist, you act against fascist messages. So blaming people for reaction, it's understandable. It's very empowering to hear stories of criminality from all over Europe and all over the world. So thank you so much for sharing that. The conflict that already raises like from these kind of situations, it seems to have escalated since then. Can you quickly wrap up what was going on later that led to the attack from 5th of December? Yes, that was like first, not first, but one of the recent uh, major cracks in the movement that points towards this distinction between like queer feminist political part of it and subcultural scene. And I think this division went also within our collective 
And one of the problems that we encountered was a problem with a Belarusian anti-fascist who was living in our house, Dima, who was really not a collectivist, very individualistic person who didn't respect our rules. And at some point, after a lot of failed negotiations and failed attempts to cure this conflict somehow, he reached for like domestic violence, physically attacked other members of the collective in the house. That is something we will not let swing. And we decided to give him notice that he should move out because he's violating the rules of our collective. That was established on the meetings that was given to him. He had some time to move out. He didn't. We waited for another week. And on the fifth, we came to him to speak about it, that he probably should move because he's not welcome here anymore. His response to that was punching with an elbow first person who started to speak. So she fell on the floor and we decided that this is the moment we are just taking him out. For me, it was super important that we made it, it, we put a lot of effort to make it super gentle. The people which approached them, they were people he was the most familiar and he had the best relations. And the way he reacted, it was punching the girl into the face. And even though we asked him gently to get out, we helped his gay friend, we allowed his girlfriend to take her phones, documents, all her things, all what she wanted. Because it's important because then they didn't allow us to take this. Very gently took him out of the gate and packed all his stuff and removed him from the house. And then within an hour, maybe a little more, a large crowd of men gathered on Przychodnia, about 30, maybe 40 people, some Belarusian anti-fascists or punks, and some members of Przychodnia collective, actually most of Przychodnia, and they told us that we have to take this Dima guy back, doesn't matter if he's using domestic violence or no, because we cannot kick him out because they don't agree to that, and that they will forcefully move him back, cut our doors and uh, cut our fence and, and intervene in the name of their colleague. We, of course, said that we don't agree to that. And fastly, they started cutting the fence. They got a bucket of cold water to calm down and uh, that escalated into an actual battle, a frontal full-scale attack from Przychodnia that lasted for about four hours uh, because they started throwing smoke grenades and stuff, uh, bottles, rocks, pepper spray, shit like that. And we responded with similar means to defend our our house. And this fighting was, I think, really violent and comparable with the Nazi attacks or police riots on our houses. But in, in case of like state attacks or Nazi attacks, we managed to defend this house for, for the past decades. But now it was our former comrades, our neighbors, who decided to attack in the name of anti-feminism and masculinism uh, and solidarity with their pal. So that was really hard. And after four hours of riot, we decided that we need to withdraw because our doors were broken with axes and there was a lot of gas inside the house and all the windows were broken and we had some wounded people already. One girl got her helmet cracked with a rock on her head. Another person was hit with the bottle on the face that cracked their skull. So we decided to abandon the house and withdraw because we didn't want to die there. And that's what we did. And that's how the decade of this project ended. It got evicted, not by the police, not by the Nazis, but by the masculinist pseudo-anarchist or menarchist, I don't know.
12 people who lived there are homeless and the whole project is shut down. Now Sehen is over. And they rob our things like we lost, some people lost money which they have in the room, phones, electronics, cameras, and they were behaving like really, really badly when we tried to take the things back. So as you can imagine, that people who almost kill you and injured some of your friends and some people get panic attack that they will really die in this building and then you have those people telling how many people get entered to the building and take the things which some people were living there for 10 years or longer and they are thinking this you can take this you cannot take and we'll not answer you where are your other things so it's like really violent and crazy and what is important from the perspective of the country, from political perspective, it's like lots of queer and anarcho-feminist people who are living life of a woman have the experience, previous experience in life of home violence or different type of violence which we survived and it was very important for us that, that we decide to stay and to protect each other that it was like said no more we are not agreeing for this that in whole this country you have to leave your own place because people who are perpetrators they are protected they are protected by the society they are saying like oh they are nice guys they are just kick you once twice first you are lying and bleeding on the street but they are generally nice yeah and you are a problematic person and we said like no more not we cannot stand it we deserve to have safe spaces and Serena was one of the last safe spaces in the city in the capital but also in Poland it was like amazing place it was the places where we were talking about experience of being raped about abortion about how it's to be queer how it's to live this life in this country on everyday basis and it was not only close to collective of Serena it was very open for other people so for example when we were preparing performances to set us free to be stronger to be able to speak about our experience there were people who are in high school and people who are on their retirement and this place is gone and you have to imagine that you have the city the capital and there is not even one place where you will be able to do stuff like this. Zdravljamo. 
životna staza Biće nebitna moja stranačka baza Stranac bit ću tamo, ali pravit ću paricu Punit ću tamo, dojče kasicu Nisu 13. godina, zid pada Unija se otvara, budućnost se obećava A dešava se egzodus radnika 370 tisuća izlivenih mozgova Nepomaženi parajze u fondova Nepomaženi parajze u fondova u Njemačku sam došao, prvi došao, došao, prve pare projao Prvi džovin smotao, ženu djecu poveo Iz domovine ih odveo, sada ovdje plešemo A u slendarski ponero Stranci smo, jugo dugu pripadamo U crku više ne idemo, porezio i više ne plaćamo I klape manje slušamo, na lude srbe roka Mozbo sancima se jebemo, ponašanja ti hrvatsko U Njemačkoj sad ja punim kesu Izdanik sam, deserter Ima lažnog doktora, lažnu adresu Pravi, dojče prolete nisam gastar bajta, ne Auslender sam care Nema povratka dole Za mito i sitne pare Care, care Nema povratka dole Za mito i sitne pare, pare Care, care Nema povratka dole Za mito i sitne pare, pare Care, care Nema povratka dole Za mito i sitne pare, pare Care, care Nema povratka dole Za mito i sitne pare Zali ste črno luknjo in njeno kontrainformativno mrežo. Po pisku oddajte svoj glas. The following is a small portion of an interview that the Final Straw Radio conducted with Robin Goldman, a member of Tekoshina Anarchist, or Anarchist Struggle, a collective of combat medics participating in the Rojava Revolution. Keep an eye on thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org for the full upcoming episode and the accompanying transcript and zine. In this portion, Robin speaks about the current situation in Rojava in terms of Turkish aggression, the military work that TA is doing, and some about the structure of the group. I'll be reading their words to protect their anonymity, as many foreigners who've gone abroad to participate in the Rojava revolution face repression when they return home to their countries. I use they, them pronouns. I am in my 30s. I've been in Rojava for a couple years. I have a background in a couple things, in sort of computer work, and I'm also in healthcare work. And yet, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Now in Rojava, we've been in this situation for the last couple of years, ever since the Syria-Kenna invasion, which was a very quick invasion into Syria and Rojava, where Turkey took over a big swath of territory toward the end of the 2019, which leaves us in a kind of relatively stable situation. There's ongoing aggression from Turkey. They're shelling pretty regularly along the front line, which is like the new sort of border between the area that is occupied by Turkish proxy forces and the area that is still held by the Syrian Defense Forces, or SDF. I can't give a super detailed description of the origins of Tegoshina Anarchist, which is just Kurdish language for anarchist struggle, but it has existed in its current form for about three or four years at this point. TA started as a part of the IFB, 
I know people have seen those logos for groups with the names like IRPGF and IFB. The IFB stands for the International Freedom Battalion. It was something that was during the time of the Daesh or ISIS war. It was a group made up of various internationalist organizations that had militants in Rojava. Sorry, my cat Shisha wants to join the interview. So the IFB were a coalition of internationalist groups that had militants here at the time, and they were cooperating together as some of them were kind of smaller groups. And there were multiple groups that had English as a common language or were otherwise not using mainly Kurdish or Arabic, as most of the groups from the region were doing. There are currently still a lot of people from the struggle in that time around here, but I wasn't around yet. I was still in the United States, so I can't give like a real detailed history. But yeah, we started this umbrella of IFB and eventually became more autonomous, and now we're an autonomous collective that is doing work with different partners. We're involved with both the military work under the SDF and also the health committee work with civilian authorities, so we kind of have two bosses at this point. We're really decentralized in how we make decisions. We try to embody our anarchist principles, which means different things to different people. So it's something that we're constantly working on as an organization. We're constantly evaluating our organizational structure and frame and debating about whether we want to change our decision-making protocol or how much protocol we want to have at all. You know, kind of the same sort of things that any anarchist organization is going to be familiar with. It's always a bit of a struggle, but we're committed to putting our ideals into practice in terms of radical democracy and trying to root out the patriarchy and other oppressive dynamics, not just in society, but within ourselves and within our organization. It's a continual process. We're a really small group, numbering typically less than 10 of us here at one time. So our purpose and our mission evolve also as the conditions change, but it offers a place for people that might not fit into other structures very well. Like in particular, in terms of like queer identity issues and these kind of things. Of course, ideologically, we're definitely not the only anarchist involved in this revolution. There's people in pretty much every international structure here, in different groups doing different types of work. So we're not claiming to represent all anarchists by any means, only that we are anarchists participating in wider work. And a goal of VTA is to try to find ways to respectfully challenge the Rojava revolution, to push it to remain as what we understand is more radical and more revolutionary, as well as learning from it. I mean, Oshalan also has published critiques specifically of anarchists, and not saying that anarchism is wrong or bad, but his critiques, I think, are actually quite the same as ones published by Malatista many, many decades ago. So we engage in these critiques. We're in unique positions because we're not just reading anarchist theory. We're trying to embody anarchist theory in small kind of collective in the midst of a capitalist economy, like collectives in the U.S., for example, would be doing. But we're in the midst of a messy revolution, full of contradictions, and really understanding what that means, and seeing how the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Because it's a time of relative peace, a lot of our work is civilian health work. There's a big epidemic of continuous leishmanias, which is a skin parasite that is spread by these little biting insects and requires a lot of injections to get rid of. And there's been a huge problem of overcrowding in the clinics, so we've been assisting with the effort to give injections to people, both civilian and military, to get rid of these parasites. So that's been taking up a lot of time recently. That's just an example of the type of work that we have with the health system. At the time, 
that I've been here, which again was after the Sierra Kiana War, there hasn't been a very scale war in, in the time I've been here. T has operated an ambulance. We had one already when I got here. I know during the time of the war, they were using it to evacuate wounded, to evacuate people in the Sierra Kiana out of the hospital, to get them out of the city to protect civilians as well, as well as wounded military members. I know that there are members of the TA that were here at the time that did very heroic things and saved a lot of lives. I think that the space for the kind of medical work that we do here is because of a combination of the disinvestment over decades in this region, plus the brain drain of 10 years of war, and resulted in a situation where there's just a really huge lack of people who are both trained and willing to go into dangerous areas to do this kind of emergency medical work. Also, in terms of work we've done, for example, I heard people who were in the time of the Syracana War that TA members were giving out tourniquets. There are people who were arriving at the hospital with wounds who would have been saved by tourniquets, but people weren't using them. Also, people would be given these individual first aid kits from TA and would just empty them out and use the contents to carry stuff. So there was this like big gap in understanding or seeing the value in this kind of distribution of materials. I think that coming from a Western perspective, and also with more of an understanding and experience of how state militaries work, our comrades place more value on this type of material preparation. So seeing how that went down, there's been a lot of work not only in our group, but in our and other groups as well to do like education. We've been teaching different military groups about using tourniquets, how to improvise tourniquets, because we don't have good supplies of like pre-made tourniquets, but you can make a pretty great one from a torn piece of t-shirt and a cleaning rod of your rifle, for example. Giving education on how to stop massive bleeding, how to do chest seals in case someone has punctured a lung, basic stuff for just keeping people alive long enough to get them to the hospital. We've been really shifting our focus from providing the care directly to providing education to people on how to do this kind of care. Like I said, we've been doing work with civilian medical systems as well to try to learn and improve, develop our skills and stay ready when we're not in the situation of having to provide emergency medical care. There's also reports, I don't know officially, but I've heard more than one person talking about feeling at least like Turkey has been targeting ambulances or that marked ambulances were targeted. And a lot of times now, especially with the drone strikes and stuff, when people are injured, they're not waiting for an ambulance to show up. They're being thrown into the back of a pickup truck or a logistics van or something that can go faster than an ambulance over the shitty roads here and get to the hospital as fast as possible. So having people that are able to stop massive bleeding or keeping the lungs from collapsing while they're in the back of their Helix pickup, I think we're seeing that that's going to make more of a difference than having an ambulance. We do still have the ambulances, and we make visits around places where maybe other ambulances aren't willing to go, but it's kind of become more of a, like, mobile clinic for the time being. Not like a real clinic, but we go in, we give the checkups for Leish Man Nasus. And you can learn more about Tekoshina Anarchist at their website, T-E-K-O-S-I-N-A-A-N-A-R-S-I-S-T.org. Thank you. New Year started quite unexpectedly for the dictatorship in Kazakhstan. Hey, 
People in several western cities of the country took to the streets due to the raise of the gas prices. After several days of brutal police repressions, the protests spread to the whole country. Just in a couple of days, the protests grew into an uprising against the regime of Nazarbayev. Quite fast, economical demands turned into political ones. People started fighting for removal of President Takayev and the government. In Almaty, several governmental buildings, including the presidential palace, were captured and set on fire. Protesters occupied the airport, central squares in several cities, important crossroads. They looted police stations to get weapons and paralyze the security forces. Within a day, the regime that was considered the most stable in the post-Soviet countries was falling apart. Police and military forces started joining the protesters or refused to attack the crowds. Nazarbayev and many of the top figures of the regime disappeared completely from public sphere. Tokayev got so afraid that he accepted certain demands of the protesters, he got rid of his government and froze the gas prices. At some point, the biggest city of the country, Almaty, was completely liberated from police and military forces. However, for the people, the steps that were taken by the Tokayev regime to silence the protests were not enough. People were still calling Tokayev to resign. So he went to Moscow to his masters. Putin and several other loyal-to-him dictators promised to provide military support to stabilize the regime in Kazakhstan. This was done in the frame of TSTO mission that gives a legal ground for intervention in member countries. In practice, that means any dictatorship in TSTO loyal to Moscow will be supported by Putin and will be almost impossible to get rid of by the local population. With Russian forces joining together with Kazakh military, severe repressions fell on the protesters. Military in Almaty opened fire at the demonstrators and for several days there were gunfights all around the city. parts of the country, protesters afraid for their safety decided to go home. In a matter of three days, almost 9,000 people were arrested. At least 225 people were killed. It seems like Takayev is trying to use situation currently in his own favor to remove Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev family, on the other side, haven't been seen for quite some time. Right now the protest movement is crashed. Arrests continue, and although Takayev is trying to present himself as a liberal reformer, it is highly unlikely that there will be progressive changes in coming years. Russian support of the regime will cost something extra. And although the protest is gone, we find it really inspiring how people in authoritarian regime rose up despite all the risks and did their best to fight for freedom.
this is the bad news recorded on the 18th of January by the Free Social Radio, 14.31 a.m. Thessaloniki. On the New Year's Eve, the state and the university authorities evicted the occupied space at the biology school of the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, Greece. The police flooded the entire campus and surrounded the building at 6 a.m. to avoid any form of resistance. Then, workers from a building company, subcontracted by the university, demolished the entrance and part of the walls. No people were found in the squad and there were no arrests on that day. The government claims that by evicting the university squads, they end the lawlessness in universities and they proceed with the gentrification of the educational institutions. The government is promoting a regime of surveillance and control in all Greek universities and is about to introduce a special university police force. Eight months ago, the dean of the University of Thessaloniki ordered the police, for the first time, to enter the Aristotle University and evict the administration building, which was occupied by protesting students. The space at the School of the Biology was initially occupied in November 1987, 34 years ago. After the occupation, it became a self-organized squad, a space of free speech, fighting misinformation, as well as a center for political action. Within the past 34 years, the squad has accommodated autonomous student groups, concert collectives, theater projects, independent radio projects and political groups. It has also hosted activities such as bars, collective kitchens, screening, Greek language lessons to immigrants, self-defense lessons and more. It has supported political causes such as conscientious objectors, political prisoners, high school protests and has also hosted many solidarity fundraising gigs for animal rights, court costs and medical bills for numerous comrades. 10th and 11th of January As a response to the eviction of the occupied space at the biology school of Thessaloniki, a new place was quoted in a nearby building. The occupation lasted for one night, since the police invaded the university the next morning and evicted the new squad. Fifteen people who were in the squad during the eviction were arrested and are facing minor offenses. 15th of January A big demonstration with the participation of 1,500 people took place in the street of Thessaloniki, protesting the eviction of the occupied space at the biology school and against the policing of the Greek universities. In the end of the demonstration there were clashes with the riot police and 23 people were arrested. All of them were set free two days later. One of them is facing felony charges, whereas the rest 22 only have minor charges. The trial for all 34 arrestees was scheduled for the Friday, 21st of January, and by the time this news flash was recorded, the verdict was not known. Arrest of anarchist Charis Majuridis. On the 13th of October, 
anarchist Haris Majuridis was violently kidnapped by the police outside his house in front of his underage child as a suspect for armed robbery after an anonymous call. He was transferred at the central police station where they took DNA samples and announced his arrest. The robbery took place in 2018 and the only alleged evidence was a glove with his DNA found two blocks away. Note that in Greece there are recently more and more cases involving anarchists that have only evidence some kind of DNA sample find on mobile objects. Majuridis, who says that he has nothing to do with the robbery, was hospitalized in Attico Hospital after a panic attack resulted in a serious head injury. Then he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital and on the 24th of December he was transferred back at Corrida Los Prison where the conditions are horrible. The case of Maturidis is not only an example of how easily the state fabricates accusations but highlights the war of the state on both our bodies and minds and reminds us that all prison cells should be burned to the ground so we can all be free. The struggle of the workers in Kavala oil. The struggle of the workers at the factory of Kavala oil in Kavala, northeastern Greece, through the union, started in March 2021. After that, the company Energian received the approval from the European Commission and the guarantee of the Greek state for a loan of 100 million euros as an assistance for the measures against COVID-19 at the request of the company and the Greek government. The overall restructuring plan included, among others, the discharge of 40 workers and 40 contractors, meaning that a total of 80 people out of the 240 workers in total were to be fired. In early August, the company began unilateral moves with charges even in the terms of the employees' contracts, such as the working hours and the number of the shifts. There were workers fainting during the consecutive 12-hour shifts, breakdowns or workload that could not be covered due to the shortages. Thus, the rivalry with the company and Aegean began. The workers started doing self-organized patrols, which means People who had a break or a day off came to the factory to help their colleagues in case of a need. In addition, they guarded the entrance to prevent the new managers from entering the factory that were set to replace two managers fired for not obeying the orders of the company. The company labeled the actions of the workers as an occupation of the factory because they wouldn't let the new managers in as long as their orders were criminal. The restructuring of the personnel would have a serious impact on the safe operation of the plant and the safety of the workers, as it would lead to cuts in staff responsible for fire safety or waste control. In October 2021, despite the reduced staff and through 12-hour shifts, the employees agreed to carry out the annual maintenance of the facilities that the company had postponed for four years already. 
The conflict with the company intensified when the company prevented the functioning of the factory by interrupting the natural gas flow and fired two employees who did not obey the orders and trying to turn it back on for security reasons. As a result, the employees reported by intensifying the security patrols. In December, the company dismissed temporarily 165 workers, violating the minimum personnel for the security, something that endangered the whole area. The minimum personnel for the security was even respected by the workers' unions during strikes. In the early hours of Tuesday, the 21st of December, the riot police evaded the factory in so that the administration of the company regains the control of the factory. About 170 workers at the Kavala oil plant became victims of a brutal repression carried out by the riot police. Police cut off the fence and entered the factory using a flashbang grenade. An electrical transformer was destroyed by the riot attack, resulting in a power outage and a serious risk of leakage of hydrogen sulfide, while the workers were forced to climb up in a metal tower of the factory for many hours and fortify there. After negotiations of the union, the employees were released. In the end, a total of 17 people were arrested, 10 during the invasion and the seven members of the board of the union. The detainees were released the next day and are awaiting trial, while, according to the information, a case has been filed for the remaining 170 employees. As of the 1st of January 2022, the employees have been withholding their labor with a company responding with black bail. The employees state that they do not back down in the struggle and can continue because they have the support of the whole city, which gives them courage and shows them that they are doing the right thing. This was the news flash for the bad news from the Free Social Radio, 1431am, Thessaloniki. Na svobodo vas pripravlja črna luknja. Anarhistični glas na radiju študent. This is it for this month's show, so good night and good fight. We're right in the middle of Sindama Square right now. Police is behind me. Many police officers have been hurt. Men and women who are trying to protect democratically elected leaders. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. 
local anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio shows on one spot. Tune in every 15th of the month. More information on a-radio-network.org. What's the revolution to you? <laughs> to kill the bosses and take their money. Ha, 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 ha.